We're going to spend a couple of weeks as we begin the fall on a series called Households of Faith, and the title comes from some research that's been done recently as a partnership between Lutheran Hour Ministries and Barna Group, and uh, it's really good information on looking at what do Christian households look like, what do they do, and how do we live out our faith at home with those around us. And so Households of Faith, next three weeks, we're going to spend some time. So this week, a little bit of introduction, and then uh, we'll look at a few different practices of what does it mean to be a household of faith. Let me begin by asking you this. If you were the kind of person who really loved Big Macs, which I know there's at least one of you here today, and you just couldn't resist the urge to have one every day for lunch, and then, of course, uh, including, or in addition to having the nice, juicy Big Mac that you couldn't say no to, you would wash it down with a giant, ice-cold bucket of Coke. And if you did that, not just one day, but every day, in 5, 10, 15, in 20 years of every day having a Big Mac for lunch and a bucket of Coke, what might your body look like? And what might the inside of your heart look like? It would do something to you, wouldn't it? And, and what might your cardiologist say to you? What we do forms us. The way we live, the things we do every day, what we do, normal things like eating can form us. Now, what if instead of the heart attack special, uh, you ate kale salad for lunch and drank lots of water and went on a brisk walk on your lunch break instead? Now, how might your life be different? How might you feel about life? How might you feel about yourself? How might, how might your cardiologist speak differently to you? What you do, what we do, forms us, and it isn't just our bodies, it's our souls. What we spend time doing influences us. Of course, parents often say this to their kids, and when I'm in seventh grade, I tell my mom it's not true, and now here I am telling you it's true. And it's not just you are what you eat, it's you become what you do. What you spend time doing affects your moods and behaviors. Uh, some people talk about, you know, you are the makeup of how many of the closest people around you and how they affect you. And the movies you watch and the TV you watch and when and how long you stare at that phone, you just can't resist. All these things and the songs we listen to that get into our heart and then spontaneously come out, what we do forms us. And it often comes down to two things. Choices habits. Choices. All day, every day, you make conscious choices about a lot of things, right? What to wear, what restaurant to go out to, maybe what career to pursue, who to marry, what car to buy, what neighborhood to live in. For some of you, to whether or not to come to church this morning, I'm glad you did. We make choices all the time, right? And all our choices have consequences, little ones and big ones. But we, we consciously make choices. But on the other side of that, we have habits, right? Choices, eventually, if we do the same thing over and over again, we just do it without thinking. We're not even thinking about doing it. Some of you, your driving route to work is like this, right? You leave home, and then 20 or 30 minutes later, you pull into work, and you're like, what just happened? I, I, didn't, I didn't pay attention to anything. I have no idea how I got here. Uh-oh, could I have crashed? And No, no, brain research says no, you, your body actually knows what you're doing. But it's become a habit. 
Or how about when you wake up? What's your morning routine? Do you just get up, make coffee, eat breakfast, look at your phone, do whatever? You do it without thinking. Whether you watch TV or night, whether you impulsively pull your phone out every time you're standing in line, well, our choices eventually become habits, and then we hardly notice them. We just do them. But both our choices and our habits are constantly forming us. So the question we're going to look at is, what kind of choices and habits do you think God wants for us? What kind of choices and habits do you think God wants for us as the church? But here we're going to talk about as households. You see, if God loves you enough to create you, beautifully, fearfully, and wonderfully made, and if God loves you enough to send his son to die and rise for you that he wouldn't have eternity without you, and if God loves you enough to send his Holy Spirit into your heart to claim you in holy baptism, if that's all true, and I believe it is true, then what kind of ongoing choices and habits do you think God wants for us? Because he wants to keep growing you in him. Households of faith. As I said, it was research done not on any families, but Christian families. And they wanted to know what do Christian households look like? What do, what do their daily lives, their choices, their habits look like? So professing Christians, people that say, yes, I'm a practicing Christian, how they would answer. And then the second question with that is, what do what they called spiritually vibrant households look like. So what do households look like that are alive in faith? What do households look like that are growing in faith, that are sharing the love of Jesus with each other, and then with other people? What do Christian households look like where children are being taught the faith and raised in the faith, and what are the markers of that that we can look at with our human eyes? But the first question you have to ask is, what's a, what's a household? Usually the, there's another word that starts with an F that we usually say when we talk about this kind of stuff. What's that word? Family. Yeah, they didn't use the word family, and here's why. Who all is your family? Whoever lives under your roof, sometimes they're not people you're related to, but they're family. Or, or you have mixed families and multi-generation. You have all sorts of things. So uh, family wasn't as useful as the term as household. Many people have a lot of, live with a lot of different kinds of people, whether it's roommates or nuclear family or multi-generation. All these, So they use the word household. People that you live with, and then by extension, biblical household, people that, your relatives that you have great influence on that you're connected. In the Bible, house would include your adult children, no matter how old they are. So household, who you live with, who you're really closely connected to, and then secondly, what is a spiritually vibrant household? What does that look like? What do spiritually vibrant Christian households look like? And as they researched a number of families, it kind of emerged into these groups of, of, by what people said. And so when they asked, hey, how do you live out your faith? What does that look like? Tell us about it. It kind of went into four main groups. And the first group they called vibrant Second group they called devotional. The third group they called hospitable. And then the fourth group they called dormant. So at the top you have vibrant and the bottom you have dormant. You can guess which one's good and which one, which one you might want to be in, which one you don't want to be in, right? Dormant means 28% of people that, of families that say we're, we're Christians. That means other than coming to worship, they don't talk about it or do anything with it at all ever. Dormant. 
28%. That's the people that say, yes, I'm a practicing Christian. So vibrant, devotional, hospitable, dormant. We'll get into that more in the coming weeks and in Bible class. We're going to spend our time talking about vibrant because that's where you want to be. And so they found three qualities of what they called spiritually vibrant households. And it's not just we go to church, but, you know, we really hate it and can't wait till, till we can leave and go out to breakfast. Or, uh, yeah, we're Christians, but we're not that serious. No, they, they found three qualities of households that intentionally lived out the gospel in their house. And as I said, by the way, if you want to dig into the actual numbers and research, come to Bible class. I'm not going to, uh, it would, it's kind of deep so as far as a bunch of numbers, and I, I don't want to overwhelm you with numbers. So there's a bunch of charts we'll look at there, but here's the overview. The top three qualities of spiritually vibrant households were this. Ready for them? This will cooperate. They apply spiritual disciplines, they extend hospitality, and they engage in spiritual conversations. So spiritual practices, do stuff together. Spiritual conversations, talk together. And hospitality. And they, this is their official definition. They said spiritually vibrant households talk about God or faith together weekly, pray together every day or two, Read the Bible together weekly and welcome non-family visitors several times a month. That's it. So if you're wondering, like, oh man, spiritually vibrant household sounds like this like unattainable magic thing that you gotta like go to strange places and do strange things, and I'll never read, pray, welcome, talk. That's not complicated, is it? See, these things aren't some uh, special, secret, hard-to-get thing. It's simply putting yourself in the path of where God works. Talk, pray, read the scriptures. God's there. God works. And welcome other people to do that with you or welcome them into your home. You see, our God works through the most normal things. When we say, where does God meet us? God meets us in word and in sacrament. What we're saying is, God meets us in the absolutely most normal things. Words. God speaks to us. Water. God washes your sins in baptism and clothes you with Christ with plain water. Bread and wine, body and blood to feed your soul. You can't get much more normal than water, bread, and wine in the ancient world. And those are God's most powerful tools. So apply spiritual disciplines, engage in spiritual conversations, and extend hospitality. So that's the overview, and just with it, for a few minutes, we're going to dig into just one of those, and that's the first one, disciplines. Spiritual practices, what does that mean? Well, you're, you're here in worship, so good, glad you're here. That, that's, a, that's, that's great, because what you do forms you. So when you come to worship every Sunday... You're putting your in the, yourself in the path of where God works. You're coming to hear that no matter what, Jesus died for you and rose for you and God loves you and that your sins are forgiven and, and that you're a new creation in Christ. And you come and hear the gospel and eat at the Lord's table. That will form you into a disciple of Jesus. And then you do that at home as a household. And over time, together with with. Other believers in your household, you encounter the saving God and his work and continues to form you. So yes, worship, spiritual practices, praying together, and they said individually and together as a household, as well as reading the Bible or sharing some sort of devotion, and then maybe a small group Bible study or some sort of group together. 
look at some of the in other interesting things that they found in this. By the way, she, uh, the woman in the video is a deaconess who works for uh, Ruth in our ministry. So here's the thing. These things we're talking about aren't some uh, special, secret, hard thing to get. It's simply putting yourself in the path of where God works. Praying together, worshiping, reading God's word. It, it's simple, but you have to be intentional. You have to make choices and, and make habits where we encounter the gospel more. So if you think about something this week, I want you to think about what are your spiritual practices? What are your spiritual disciplines? And how might God want to change them? What habits might God want to change for God's glory and so that you lead your household in faith? Or what better choices might you want to make so that you encounter more regularly the good news of Jesus? So our first reading today we looked at was Deuteronomy 6, and there God gave some really specific instructions for his people about how he wanted their households to act, particularly about their faith. He was giving them instructions of how to be spiritually vibrant households, and God's people were at the edge of the promised land. Their, their tippy toes were touching the promised land. They, they could taste the milk and honey. They waited 40 years. They were ready. They were there, and here's God's kind of last word and testament to them. It's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now you might recognize this. Known as the Shema, prayed twice daily by Jews, even to this day. Jesus likely prayed it twice a day, and they added to the end of that, and love your neighbor as yourself. And God only says this after. He says, Everything I've done for you, saved you from Egypt, brought you out, fed you in the desert with bread out of nowhere from the ground and water from a rock. After all of this, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all your strength. And then it gets really practical. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, during regular daily life, talk about my word. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And if you go to Israel today, you'll see nearly every building, every hotel room even, have a mezuzah on the door, and that is putting this verse in God's word at, on your gates, on your door. And many people will kiss their hand and touch it as they walk back and forth as a reminder of, of what this verse says to do. God says, God's word, teach, talk, bind, write. Put it into action. And then it keeps going. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with great and good cities you didn't build, houses full of things you, you did not fill, cisterns you did not dig, vineyards, olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's it. These words on your heart, teach, talk, bind them, write them. Why? Take care lest you forget the Lord. That's it, right? Why would God tell his people to do these spiritual practices? It's so they don't forget. Why? Because we forget the Lord, don't we? 
Why do we come back to worship every week? Because we forget and need to be retold and reformed and renewed every week by the gospel. We forget God, especially when, when life is good and when life is busy. So God says, don't forget. Do these things so that you don't forget what I've done for you. Do these things so that you don't forget that God has saved you by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And God wants you to, to lead others to that saving water for the soul. So we don't pray and read the Bible and worship. I'm not, I'm not here saying, hey, you should do this stuff so that God is happier with you and he's going to unlock greater you know, blessings to you or, or increase your bank account or whatever. No, God's not promising that. God is already pleased with you because you are clothed with Christ. And God looks at you by faith, your faith, that you look like Jesus to God the Father. And so you are already forgiven and, and renewed, but forgiven and renewed for a purpose so that other people might know too. So as you go this week, think about how might God want to invite you into something deeper? How might God want to grow your household deeper in faith?